Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar.com. This podcast is brought to you by MFS Investment Management, backed by 40 years of essential fixed income. Markets change, but the role fixed income plays shouldn't. That's why we stay true to our traditional approach, essential fixed income. Find out more at MFS.com slash fixed income. This week on the podcast, we reflect on the life of Jack Bogle. The Vanguard founder passed away Wednesday at age 89. Morningstar's experts interviewed Bogle a number of times over the years, and this week, we look back at some of our favorite clips. Let's start with the 2008 financial crisis. Christine Benz asks Bogle about his take on the market environment and what investors should do. Hi, I'm Christine Benz. I'm here at the Vanguard Diehards Conference in San Diego, and I'm happy to be sitting here with Jack Bogle, who is really the epicenter of this conference. Something. Jack, thanks for being here. Let's talk about the current market environment. It's crazy. Give us your take on what's going on and what do you think investors should be doing? Well, of course, I've only been in business, this business, for 57 years, uh, and I have never seen anything like it in my life. I've never seen anything like the amount of speculation that's going on in the market, which is basically twice as much stock trading, twice as much turnover as we had in 1929, the previous high. And we have these frequent days. We've had 37 of them in the last year where the market's gone up or down 2% uh, or more. And uh, when I came into this business in 1951, we might have had three or four days a year like that. 12 times as many wild and woolly days as history would have said. So we've just, we've taken the whole focus of market participation in our capitalistic system here in the US uh, from one of investment to one of speculation. And I happen to think that's a tragedy in which the investors are the losers and which of course, somebody's a winner, Wall Street wins. Uh, they make $650 billion a year in fees and commissions and all that kind of thing, which means that investors lose that much to the market. So it's, it's a uh, system that's crying out for change, although I never would have guessed the change would be so abrupt. I never would have guessed the speculation would have been so rampant. I never would have guessed that credit would be so easy. I never would have guessed that credit standards would be so devastatingly low. So what, what do you think are the solutions? Well, unfortunately, the one solution that we're going to get is government intervention. And I don't think there are very many people that really like or look forward to government intervention. I don't know anybody that thinks the government can do a better job than the private enterprise side of the system. Well, in the case of the financial system, they certainly can't do a worse job. But uh, the government is the only vehicle, the only body, the only source of liquidity we have left. So the government has no choice but to intervene. This is, in fact, the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression. So one thing I've been thinking about, if you are not a speculative investor, if you're a long-term investor, and yet there are these speculative investors buffeting your returns about, what should your reaction be? Should you be doing anything differently? Uh, I think, basically, you should not be doing anything differently. I mean, investment is a pretty simple thing. Investment is owning businesses, or I would say, being an inveterate index fund person, owning all of American business, owning every company in America, uh, letting capitalism do its work. Uh, those companies will grow at probably around 7% a year. They'll pay you at about a 2.5, somewhat lower than history, but a 2.5% dividend yield. And that should, over time, bail you out of anything that happens because of the wild swings. I mean, if you visualize investment as growing in kind of a steady line, which it does, and visualize 
the crazy market as being all these jags up and down around this steady line, upward, upward, always upward, I think, uh, then you've got to say, I know I'm not smart enough to get out at the high. I know I'm not smart enough to get back in at the low. So I'm just going to stay the course, as we would say at Vanguard, and hang on through all that. And importantly, if I'm trying to accumulate money for retirement, or to buy a home, or to educate my children, what you want to do is keep investing. And you know, say, how can I keep investing the day that the market goes down 600 points? That's the greatest time in the world to invest. It's certainly better, better than doing it the day before, before it goes down 600 points. And I think, I think people have lost sight of the fact that a sharp market decline is, of course it's bad for sellers, but it's good for buyers. And since the stock market is the interaction of sellers and buyers, it's always good for somebody. Right. <laughs> Overwhelmed by the market? Morningstar Premium will help you cut through the noise and find the most promising investments. Get started today with Morningstar Premium. Next up, in 2009, Don Phillips inquires about capitalism. As a card-carrying capitalist, uh, how do you feel about, uh, or what lessons are there about capitalism from what's happened here, and how do you feel about the increased uh, and expanded role of government? Well, business brought it on themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, uh, certainly a crisis in capitalism. Uh, Judge Posner uh, blames it all on the capitalistic system. He's the great Chicago schoolman, everybody knows. Uh, University of Chicago Law School, Chicago Business School, all teaches this you know, the markets have to clear. Uh, they will produce great gains for us, competition, free markets unimpeded. Uh, and uh, so capitalism has basically failed us. And I think even worse, which, although Judge Posner does not, not, dis, not agree with this, uh, I think capitalists have failed us as well as capitalism. And I'd blame the capitalists actually more than the capitalism, which gets to done, you know, kind of the endemic part of the system which means that uh, the idea that the capitalism brought this crisis uh, upon itself is, is even more uh, acceptable, more understandable in the, in the whole scheme of things. And that is these businessmen take the bankers. Every, all the other banks are doing these low loans. So their earnings are growing faster than ours are. So our directors and, and the analysts on Wall Street say, boy, you better get on the bandwagon and follow. It's a little bit, I've written on this in a number of different contexts, but it's a little bit like uh, the old ethical standard. Think about this, all of you, if you would. Uh, there are some things that one just didn't do. That's the way I was brought up. It's not gray. It was black and white. And now the ethical standard seems to be, if everybody else is doing it, I can do it too. And carry that over into the banking. Everybody else is doing these funny loans and having earnings grow faster building up their margins, levering those margins. The more leverage A gets, the more leverage B feels inclined to get. So the system fed on itself and drove bankers to making decisions that they presumably uh, should have known better than to make. I don't, like Judge Posner does, however, I don't blame government for this. Uh, I was at a meeting of CEOs, uh, even though I haven't been one for quite a while, <laughs> uh, and uh, Someone asked me to sum up the morning. This is a bunch of bankers and other CEOs. And I, they said, what do, you, what do you think about all this? I said, you know, what I'm hearing here is you're blaming the government for allowing you to do 
what you should have had enough brains not to do in the first place. <laughs> and uh, I, I think there's a lot to that. So it's endemic to the system, and we have to learn to have a better capitalistic system. I don't call it nationalism, call it what you will, Don. Uh, if the government owns 35% of the bank, it's not their fault they own 35% of it. They had to bail the bank out. And frankly, other than the fiscal issues, I don't see any difference in having uh, Washington, D.C. own 35% of Citibank than having Dubai own it, except Dubai would drive a much harder bargain. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems at the end of the day, character still counts. Yes, uh, character still counts, and we have lost a lot of that. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date, independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Now, Bogle discusses corporate governance in 2010. Jack, I know you're a big believer in uh, holders of, of stock exercising their right to um, weigh in on governance matters, vote against outlandish pay packages, and so forth. Uh, a question uh, that I have, actually my colleague Greg Wolper raised it to me, um, is that if indexing continues to gain traction as it has, does that sort of run at odds with the idea of governance? And, and if the corporation knows that the passive investor doesn't have that ultimate weapon of walking away, can it just uh, really ignore the index fund's uh, wishes? Well, I, mean, I, I come to the exact opposite conclusion. Okay. The index fund, this is what we call the Wall Street rule. If you don't like the management, sell the stock. Uh, we can't. An index fund cannot sell a stock. So the only weapon we have if we don't like the management is to get a new management or to force the management to reform. To me, it's pretty simple. Uh, and uh, it's right out of Benjamin Graham's first book, What Governance Should Do, What Stockholders Should Do If a Company Is Ill-Governed. Take an active role. Nobody paid any attention to that advice, and they haven't yet. So I'd say index funds are the great hope for governance. Uh, index funds are now about, in round numbers, 22% of all equity fund assets. And when you get to state and local governments and, and even, even corporate pension plans, uh, indexing is probably uh, every bit of 25% of all stock. And uh, that's the only recourse we have. I suggested years ago, uh, post Enron, uh, the formation of a, uh, uh, a group to, to do um, uh, long-term investors to get together and agree to some governance principles, not telling people how to vote, but to get involved in governance. And it was very hard to get people even to talk about it. Why is that, do you think? Uh, I think it's, first of all, there's no money in governance. You don't make more money by paying a lot of attention to governance. Second, uh, we run the money for corporate America, we institutional investors. And so if we take on a corporation, uh, somebody's going to lose that client. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one doesn't want to take on one's biggest clients. Everybody says, oh, we would never do that. It's a pretty subtle thing, and it's hard to measure. But the fact of the matter is that there's no evidence, by the way, that, that, that this happens, that, that mutual funds or other institutional investors uh, have a different stance on voting with clients as compared to with non-clients. But that, uh, I think that's because we have no interest in active voting at all. Uh, it's not as if there's an active and an inactive share. It's all inactive. And uh, bringing to mind the, the uh, I don't know, aphorism that I've used for a long time, and that is uh, the mutual fund, from the fund manager's perspective, 
pension fund manager, mutual fund management. There are only two kinds of clients we don't want to offend, actual and potential. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of clients. So if we start to gradually break down these walls where corporate protective moats that protect the corporations from their shareholders, uh, I look at index funds as being right in the foreground. Uh, think about the SEC proposal, which I think is very modest, but probably as much as we can do, and therefore I'm for it. And that is get 3% of the shareholders together, 3% of the votes together, but only 3% who have held shares for at least three years. Where are you going to find institutional investors who hold shares for three years? Their turnover is 100%. That's one year, except for index funds. So I think index funds are going to emerge as a powerful force in corporate governance. Now, I'm an optimist, and maybe it'll take a long time to happen. But given the fact that indexing is, not may, but is going to be uh, more and more dominant with each passing year, there's no way around it. Uh, that's the mathematics. That's all it is. Uh, don't fight the math. Um, then indexing will get bigger and bigger, and uh, index funds will be called to the task. Uh, and uh, and we'll measure up to that. I have to tell you this, which is very disappointing. Someone, I think it was a reasonable survey, um, took a look at all mutual fund managers to see how, what kind of scores they got in terms of activist, mm -hmm. activism and governance. And right at the bottom of the list were the three, in the bottom of the list were the three index fund, large index fund firms. And that would be Vanguard, that would be uh, State Street, and that would be uh, BlackRock. Can you speak to Vanguard's placement on that list? I don't know anything about it, okay. uh, but I and, and I do think. I mean, I had I had an idea at the beginning of the year uh, when the Supreme Court made this insane ruling, turning over decades of precedent uh, that corporations could give away money, to make could make uh, political contributions, unlimited political contributions. Uh, it's absurd on the facts. It's absurd on the principles. But I thought there would be some limitations, self-imposed limitations by having to disclose what they did. Uh, but I did do an editorial, an op-ed, uh, that proposed that um, fund managers made the following proposal in corporate proxies, resolved that this corporation shall make no political contributions without the approval of 75% of their shareholders. And nobody paid any attention to it. Nobody was interested in doing it, uh, probably because I pointed out, it seemed obvious to me, that if we're going to put those things in shareholder proxies, corporate proxies, that we first ought to pledge not to make political contributions ourselves because we're corporations too. And uh, that may have been the icing on the cake. But I, I haven't given up on that yet because, of course, as everybody knows, the situation has gotten much, much worse uh, because uh, another Supreme Court ruling, uh, which has allowed so-called 501c3 charitable organizations, they can give half their money to political causes, just so long as they don't name the candidate or something very, uh, very vague. I mean, you can, it's so easy to help a candidate without using his name or her name, uh, that, uh, and now it's going to be anonymous. So that last fragile check on uh, corporate largesse uh, is, uh, is, is, is pretty much gone. So this is a bad era for corporate activism. Uh, but. Uh, if it's going to, you know, we're, we're going to see how it works out. But the idea that corporations with these uh, huge numbers of shareholders, they're going to be voting in the interest of their, of, of their executives, sure. not in the interest of their shareholders. 
and uh, you know, if exec compensation issues come up, that's how they're going to vote. And uh, it's, a, it's a very serious, one of the most serious problems we have in financial America, and that is what we call the agency problem. And that is um, corporate America is no longer controlled by investors, it's controlled by agents of investors. Uh, it used to be that mutual funds and pension funds and endowment funds controlled about 8% of all the stock in America. Today they control 70% of all the stock in America. They can, they, corporate America will march to their tune if they just wake up and say, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. Think of the difference if the corporation, the corporation X had a single shareholder with 70%. There'd be no question about who the boss of that corporation. Forget who's chief executive. He doesn't count. The boss counts, and the boss doesn't have doesn't need any titles. Doesn't need to be be the chairman, the president, and the CEO. He owns seventy percent of the stock. He's the owner. <laughs> That's the mood I want to get our institutional investors in, and I will keep trying. I, I'm sure you will, Jack. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to hear your insights, and, and such a privilege to sit down with you today. Oh, well, Thanks for joining us. Great to be with us. you, Christine. This podcast is brought to you by MFS Investment Management, backed by 40 years of essential fixed income. Your fixed income strategies should aim to deliver the essentials for your clients. Income, diversification, and risk management. Find out more at mfs.com slash fixed income. Next, from 2018, Bogle talks about the effect that indexing has on the market. One question that you and I have talked about over the years is um, just the growth of in indexing and the potential for it to make the market at large start to behave differently because so much money is in index tracking products. Um, I know you've said in the past you don't think we're there yet, but um, let's discuss your view on that topic. Ha has it evolved since we last talked, or um, do you still think that indexing would need to get a lot larger? Well, it's amazing to me. I was citing this, this uh, statistics of the Vogelheads this morning, and that is I did a study for the Board of Directors in 1975 and had the previous 35 years of large cap funds, that's what we had in those days, uh, mutual funds, compared to the S&P index. And the S&P index outperformed by 1.6% a year. Uh, an article I wrote for the Financial Analyst Journal a couple of years ago, I updated that study and went 35 years up to 2015, the previous 35 years. And the difference was 1.6% in favor of, of the index fund. So why is that? Because the cost of mutual fund management is about 1.6%. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. It's uh, smaller at, at uh, large cap funds and bigger at small. Um, but it's telling us what we should know, that the average manager is average before cost. I mean, how else can that be? Uh, it's a very competitive business, very smart people competing with one another, but it's hard to get an edge. So um, I, I think that there's very little evidence that indexing even at 45% of the fund industry has changed the nature of the market. I would add this, supposing the market is less efficient, and people will say, aha, then managers can do well. Active managers Active will have managers. their managers. It will be a stock picker's market, right. as they say. Uh, no, because if active manager A beats the market, active manager B will lose to the market. I mean, there's no way around the fact that if, if these, the, the, that part of the market that's outside of indexing, uh, if somebody does better, 
relative to the market. Somebody does worse relative to the market. And as for a stock picker's market, I mean, I never saw a phrase that seems to have such acceptance that meant so little uh, when one thinks about it. Sure, there's a stock picker's market, but every stock that's picked is unpicked by somebody else. Everybody that buys uh, is buying from a seller. I mean, it's the simplest thing in the world that people don't seem to get. We're all consigned to average as a group. And when you take costs out, that's where the index advantage comes in. Go from one investment analyst to 150. Sign up today for Morningstar Premium and let our independent and unbiased research staff help you find the best investments. Get started today with Morningstar Premium. Now, from 2016, Bogle's thoughts on 40 years of indexing. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. The index fund recently celebrated its 40th birthday. I sat down with Jack Bogle, Vanguard founder, to discuss that milestone. The index fund celebrated a big uh, birthday, anniversary, whatever you want to call it, 40 years. Uh, let's talk about that. Um, this um, was your doing, and let's talk about whether the uptake of indexing was what you expected. Did you expect it to take off faster than it did? I expected it to take off two things, one good, one positive, and one negative. Um, the negative is I expected it to take off much faster than it did. It took 20 years until the mid-90s mid, uh, right. for it to begin to gain real traction. And then it accelerated, and the, the growth from 1995 to, to 2016 has been astonishing, and it's sustained. And the cash flows are over 100% of the industries. Vanguard leads in that, and of course. And uh, so it's done a lot of good for a lot of people. Uh, people say, why doesn't everybody start an index fund? And I said, the answer to that is very simple. All the darn money goes to the investors. This is a business. The money's not in it for the... Yeah, they're, they're in it to earn a return on the capital, particularly the capital that owns the firm, all those conglomerates that own these firms. Uh, and the mutual fund division of that firm, or the mutual fund organization that's a subsidiary, has to produce a return on the buyer's capital. And if the buyer, if you don't, the buyer will get somebody who will. I mean, it's a hard... Capitalism is a hard business, but the capitalism in our business should be focused on the shareholder who puts up the, the money, puts up the capital, takes the risk, and ought to get all the reward, and he only gets about a third of it uh, over time. So um, it, it's, it's amazing to think in this index boom, we have only one serious, at least vaguely serious competitor, that would be Fidelity to Vanguard. And, and of course, BlackRock is not as big as we are in indexing, but overall, they're a much bigger firm than Vanguard, to which I have zero envy. Size is not a great blessing. Uh, size is, carries with a lot of administrative baggage, a lot of struggle to recognize the people that are doing the work around the company, and a lot of bureaucracy. And uh, I was telling someone the other day, Christine, that I've been worried about size getting too big for as long as I can remember. And Vanguard size, though, has really been increasing exponentially over the past. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying we should stop it. You know, Ioma, I mean, the, I used to have these arguments with the directors about slowing down our growth, and they said, well, look, you do that, and there'll be a whole lot of investors that deserve to be in Vanguard that won't be there. 
And uh, so in any event, uh, I've been worried about it for so long. And in a speech I gave in 1989 to the Vanguard crew, I said, you know, we're starting to get big. And I hope we're very careful as we get bigger and bigger. I'll do my best to make sure that we always, that Vanguard is always a place where judgment has at least a fighting chance to triumph over process. And I talked about the perils of looking like a giant mutual insurance company, life insurance company, casualty company, which is impersonal and all rigid, bureaucratic, about the perils of getting anywhere near that. And when I gave that speech, our assets were $47 billion. <laughs> and you know, I'm not saying we should stop it. I am saying we should be very focused on what we have within here. Uh, we have terrific crew members, a terrific crew, under Bill McNabb, great leaders, and I think they're doing everything they can, but size is a captivating, capturing kind of thing that uh, you know, grabs you a little bit more with each passing day. And we're still able to attract very wonderful young people uh, and still able to retain terrific veterans. I go to, go to a lot of these retirement parties or 25-year parties, and my God, the quality of people we have here, they're just people that are dedicated, they know what they're doing, they know about the company's values, and they love the people they work with, their little teams all over the country, all over the company. So it's, uh, I'm wary of size, and everybody knows that. I've said it so many times, it would be a little ridiculous to try and deny it. Have you been concerned uh, about the products that have cropped, out, cropped up outside of Vanguard mainly under the index umbrella that really don't, in your view, do justice to your original idea? Concerned, angry, astonished. Um, there is a fringe element. It's almost entirely in the ETF industry. That's a marketer's dream. Uh, you know, people that have no background in the business, Henry Kaufman calls them financial buccaneers, uh, come into the business with a hot idea. And they want to sell, I won't name any names, they want to sell what's ever hot. Mm -hmm. And you've read interviews with these managers in, in, um, in Barron's, kind of frightening. And they say, well, I know that Japan and Europe, two of their funds, um, our uh, currency neutral funds uh, aren't gonna last forever. Um, so we'll think of something else when they fail. Was that the way to be in this business? To market products? I don't even like the word product. I banned it here actually years ago. It'd come back and you used to pay a $5 fine if you ever mentioned it. I didn't think we were manufacturers selling products. I thought we were trustees selling fiduciary services. People would say, you know, that guy is a real sap. And he probably is. <laughs> but I have an idealistic view of the business. Can your portfolio weather the market? Use our premium portfolio tools to identify risks and streamline your holdings. Get started today with Morningstar Premium. And finally, Morningstar's own tribute to Bogle. I remember Jack uh, for many, many reasons, but most of all for his optimism and the fact that he really believed in helping the small investor 
and ensuring that that investor could have that great outcome that he or she was looking for. You could obviously fill books about Mr. Bogle's contributions to the financial services industry and to individual investors. I consider it one of the great privileges of my career that I got to meet Mr. Bogle through our annual Bogleheads conference conversations. We would do video interviews. And I'll also say that as a young analyst, reading Mr. Bogle, getting to know his philosophy was enorm enormously clarifying to me as a young analyst. It helped shape the types of products that I would recommend and also helped shape my career path. He was pro-low-cost products, of course, but he was also against so much of the complicated gobbledygook that Wall Street puts out. So hearing his philosophy was an incredible gift. I don't believe that there's ever been, nor will there ever be, anyone who has given more to investors and taken less in return than Jack Bogle. His premise was the more that we can save investors, the more that ends up in their pockets, the better the outcomes they achieve. And, and the fact that we now see millions of investors that are in index funds, including Vanguard index funds, I think stands as, as a towering monument to, to his legacy. It's immeasurable in the sense that Jack really changed the psychology of investing. His ethic was that you know, you put the investor front and center where they belong. They don't subordinate to other business interests. Instead, you win when they win. And that was not conventional wisdom in the industry some years ago uh, when he was trying to popularize indexing and, and bring Vanguard up. And yet he inverted the psychology of the industry. He enshrined a new standard that put the investor front and center. And, and I think we owe a lot to Jack because now we see that sort of ethic, that sort of standard being table stakes in the industry. And I think that all investors, not just Vanguard investors, all investors are better off for Jack's efforts. So he's had an enormous impact, both in measurable and immeasurable ways. One of the things that's so impressive about Jack Bogle was his unrelenting focus on the end investor. And he maintained that focus despite serious health issues and uh, dust-ups along the way with other executives at Vanguard and so forth. And I think when we look at the, the impact that he's had across his life, it's really tremendous. And we all have him to thank for that. He didn't just pioneer the first index fund. He helped investors in all kinds of ways that get less recognition. He pioneered closure of funds to help protect current shareholders. He was an advocate in simplifying the language of prospectuses so that your average investor could understand them and make intelligent choices. He was a tireless advocate for others, and he will be sorely missed. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar.com. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening.